A listener note. The safety information discussed in this podcast are our views based on our personal firsthand experiences. Each safety situation presents unique risks, and the solutions discussed in this podcast should not take the place of thorough risk assessments or evaluations based on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Welcome to Safe, Efficient, Profitable, a Worker Safety Podcast where we break down real problems from real situations and discuss realistic solutions. And here's your host, owner of Allen Safety LLC and CHMM, Joe Allen. Good day. This is Joe. Today we have episode number five. I can't even believe we got this far, but we have, and it's pretty great. One of the things we're looking at doing today is we're going to go over a little bit of information we covered in the last few episodes. Basically, the, each one leads up to another, but this one today is pre-emergency readiness. So this one is about getting things done ahead of time and planning and brainstorming. So what we decided to do is sometimes on these podcasts, they say they bring a guest on. So I was like, you know what? Let's find a guest. So I did find a guest. We're going to be bringing to you Jen Allen. Jen, are you there? I am here. I am here. I'm happy to be here. And a real random guest you're bringing on the show today, Joe. (laughs) Yes. We said we need somebody who knows the material, someone who has experience, someone who's been in national magazines, someone who sits on national committees, and somebody who's fought live events and has helped plants prepare. This is what Jen does. Jen has helped a multitude of plants across the country figure out how they need to do stuff or what gear they need or how many people they need. And like I said, she's wrote articles about it. So I was like, She's a great person to pick. Now, for those you don't know, she just also happens to be my wife. So there we go, Jen. Thank you for that incredible welcome. I really appreciate it. Yes, we value you, Jen. All right. So back to our podcast here. Today, we're going to be talking about pre-emergency readiness. This is a three-part series. The first part of this one is to think of things on the front part of what we would need to do. So Jen is going to talk a little bit about, okay, what do we need to have or not having that kind of information? What you need to know is we've fought hundreds of leaks and we're asked all these questions all the time. So we just thought it'd be a good way to talk about this. So Jen, tell us what you're thinking. Yeah. So the first thing that we're going to think about when we talk about pre-emergency readiness is generally something around some kind of PSM program. So we may have a full PSM program. We may have a PSM light. We may not have anything, but we may look at it like, you know what, we want to be able to look at managing spills or managing leaks. And how would we even go about starting to deal with that? So There are some things within the PSM program that are helpful that help us manage some of these systems to first off prevent the leak from even happening or the spill from even happening. We're going to be thinking about things like, you know, mechanical integrity and management of change processes and pre-startup safety reviews. A lot of that stuff comes into mind. Employee training SOPs are going to be some of the things that you're going to lean on pretty heavily. But in addition to that, there's also the determination of, are we even going to have a hazmat team? And what kinds of training is even available. One of the things that Joe and I have worked on pretty heavily since 2014 
is the concept of it doesn't have to be the world in hazmat of I either have a level A team or I have nothing. And so one of the things that we've worked on is there's got to be some kind of in-between ground. So maybe I do have some kind of support, but it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. Or maybe I have a small location, but I still need to be able to respond to a certain capacity. So one of the things on this episode that we're going to cover is how do we break down are we going to have a hazmat team? Sounds kind of scary. Sounds like a lot of cost. Sounds like a lot's going to be involved. And so just kind of walking through that determination process of, is this something you even want to delve into? Is it not? Does it make sense for our location, our size, where we're located within the country, as well as just kind of determining what would the costs be in association with having a team? And what does the equipment look like? What all is even involved? What are the steps that I'm going to now have to do as a manager to work in that direction? So the first thing I think we probably want to cover, Joe, is just the concept of reframing hazmat in general. Historically, it's kind of been viewed as this really scary thing that, you know, we don't break out the gear very often. We don't respond very often. It's a once in a lifetime type of a thing. But unfortunately, good as some of our PSM programs may be and as diligent as we're trying to be with our mechanical integrity inspections and our compliance audits, of course, the concept is if we do PSM right, we keep it in the pipes so we don't have a need for all of that. And while that's sort of true, theoretically, we still are having lots of turnover over right now. We're having contractors who are really, really short on labor and the labor they do have may be really short on experience. So that's generating some of our leaks. We're having the situation where we have done the inspections. We know what our mechanical integrity opportunities are, but we can't get parts. And so it's just a waiting game. We're hoping we're doing our best, but we just can't get the equipment in. We can't get those replacements made. So those are kind of all the scenarios in terms of, yes, we do try and manage it on the front end very heavily. However, as a manager, we're kind of reframing how we're viewing hazmat and we're looking at it more in terms of an insurance policy, kind of like a car insurance policy. You hope you never need it, but you have it in case you do. You know, the other opportunity that we're seeing is that over time, there's been a change in the interpretation of the term nuisance leak. A lot of times we hear things like, well, we don't respond to hazmat leaks. We don't do the level A thing. We don't wear SCBAs. We just respond to nuisance leaks. And once you start asking some of the questions in terms of, well, what does that mean? Because there's no formalized definition of a nuisance leak relates to a certain parts per million for each chemical. So when you start delving into, well, what does that mean exactly? Are you wearing an APR? Are you having to put on some kind of PPE? Are you having any kind of respiratory protection put on? Are you using a meter? Are you shutting something off? that's leaking that should not be leaking. And just to be clear, we're not talking about maintenance tasks here. We're talking about we have got a problem with the system. We've got to perform an action and wear PPE to shut it off. And the view has been in different states from a regulatory standpoint, they've started viewing that all the way back starting in 2014 as a hazmat response. So we were tasked to work with a client that said, hey, we've got this interpretation from OSHA. They're suggesting that we need to do something. We don't have have a formalized hazmat team. We don't really want a full level A team. What are our options? And so at that time, Joe and I worked to develop a type of level C response. So APRs only, that kind of makes 
the barriers to entry a little bit less. And so that's kind of what we've gotten. We typically discuss it from the Allen safety side as stage one, two, and three. So stage one being the incident investigation. So something's happening and that we're notified at that time that we have an event. Stage two would be response in like a level C type situation and APR response. And then Stage three would be what you typically think of with the fully encapsulated suits, the level A response with the ICBAs. We've got some different options in terms of what we can wear and how much training we're going to do and how much we're going to spend. One of the other things I think that's important to talk about, Joe, is probably cost. Cost to have a hazmat team, but also the cost to not have a hazmat team. And some of the cost to not have a team is going to be dependent on what our resources are in the community and what those response times look like. So Joe, with your fire background, can you talk a little bit about some of the different support that can be provided based on whether we've got a paid team, a volunteer team, or just a regional team that would be responding? Yes, there's variations of fire department response. We may have a fire department that's three minutes away, but the people that actually perform the hazmat could be 20 minutes away. It could be bad weather out. It could be rain, you know, down south. We're a Florida company. You get a hurricane or even high winds. They shut down bridges and they shut down things. So you may not be able to get the fire support you would have. And you go up north and you get a snow day and you may not be able to get firefighters showing up at all that day. You may be 30 minutes or two hour delay. So I look at it like, yes, it's important to have those resources around you, but everybody has something like that. But it's how you're going to manage it on the in-between time. And we were talking earlier about getting by stuff. We ordered an overhead door, a garage door months ago, and we barely got it in. And we still don't have the pieces to make it work. Like she said, we're seeing the labor issues, people not being there. We're seeing the fire response being slower or delayed because of different variables. And then we're actually seeing the equipment or what we need to do the task or getting new meters become a problem. So all of this is, has been becoming a multiplier on how long it takes to do a task. So what we try to say is stage two is get some people involved and start building some kind of team. And then we figure out what we're going to do from there. But we still got to start with the baseline on how we're even going to set this up. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think a lot of that is going to be dependent on whether you're comfortable having a stage two team or you feel the need to have a stage three team based on that time frame of response. So if I've got a volunteer fire department and so I'm going to be relying on my regional team, if they're 30 minutes away and I look at my RMP for what my worst case scenario would be and how much chemical I'm dumping or releasing during that worst case scenario, given high pressure, medium pressure, how much of my system is left by the time regional shows up and then starts getting dressed to respond and then does their briefing and then reviews your SOPs. So I think that one of the main determinations on how comfortable are we with having a stage two versus stage three team is that LEPC response time and how quickly they can get to you and how long is it going to take before we can make that first entry. I know that if we've got a stage three or a level A trained team, we do have the ability to make entry maybe a little bit sooner. And one of the benefits of that is that we can tackle that leak and hopefully get something figured out 
and get that shut down a little bit sooner. So that's changing the amount of time that I'm releasing whatever the contaminant is. So that's in turn going to directly relate to my downtime. I'm going to have to maybe shut part of the system or the entire system down, which means maybe if it's a food plant, I'm not able to hold temperatures now. Maybe I've got contaminated product and the more chemical that releases, the more contaminated product I'm now not able to ship out to consumers. So that's going to change my cost. So when we talk about the response time of third-party support, there's definitely a cost factor there in terms of would it take me longer in downtime to respond? Now I've got a third party who may not have any training on my PSM system or my, if it's a food plant, my refrigeration system, my enclosed loop system, they are going to start pushing buttons and turning valves. They may not be communicating what those are. And now I'm not really sure what happened, what got turned, what's closed, what's open. And that can present a little bit of a cost and a challenge from the maintenance side on the back end of the release as well. So these are all costs in terms of length of time, downtime, maybe additional contaminated product that now I can't ship out, maybe additional time to clean up that contaminated product and render that out. So that's going to be a cost of disposal in addition to just lost product in general. And now I'm also talking about the maintenance cost that if we start having people turn valves and shut off things that maybe they're not meant to really be shut down that way. Yes, it's an emergency, but in a perfect world, we would perform a certain sequence of steps and the response party that's a third party isn't familiar with that and they don't follow those. That can present a little bit of a cost too. And Joe, I know that from a downtime standpoint and a cost to the business standpoint, that's something that you focus pretty heavily on, especially with incident commanders and incident managers managers in determining how do we want to shut this down and how do we want to address a specific leak. We even start getting into some of that stuff. So those are all the pre-planning in terms of creating maybe emergency response procedures for some of your major pieces of equipment. And I know that that's stuff that you cover in some of your classes. Yes. The other thing we look at is how many people is it going to take? So we start developing a plan and we say, is it going to take five people to do this task or 10 people or 12? A a small location, I may say 15 or 17 could do this process. A large location may take 30 or 40. It's also if you're rural, you may have a full level A team and you may need a lot of people because, like you said, it may be all volunteer for those areas. So we consider all these different factors from PPE to size location to where it is in the country and availability of what we're going to determine and how big that team needs to be. And you're right, each location gets to decide how they're going to manage it. I had some pretty big leaks last few years that were weather-related, or we couldn't get product out, or we didn't have the labor to do the task. And we brought in contractors, they didn't have the labor to do the task. So those are all variables of how we're looking at it. And yes, we're always going to be safe, but there's no exact blueprint of how to shut off a leak. And we just had a few hundred of them we work. So we just have different ways we look at some of the puzzle pieces. Yeah. And I think an important part to also note is that if you're dealing with something that's oxygen deficient, that's going to be one of those things that you're going to want to evaluate on the front end when you're determining, are we going to have a, a level A team? Are we going to have a stage two team? In addition to that, it's also your ambulance support. And so one of the biggest things that's a really uncomfortable conversation that no one wants to have is that if you have a trigger event that causes the release to occur and someone gets hurt inside, maybe your operator or maybe a maintenance person, if you don't have a trained team that is specifically trained to go in and wear PPE to get that person and remove them from a hazardous environment, they are waiting for that ambulatory support 
And they're not going to get that until a fire team is able to get dressed and make an entry. And then they start getting deconned at that point. So what does that timeline look like? And is your management team understanding that that's a very real situation? And are they comfortable with that? I know that that's something that no one wants to talk about. And everyone wants to think, well, we would just go in and get him real quick. And unfortunately, from a command standpoint, and as a manager standpoint, that's where we have to have those really brutal conversations of we have to let them be because I can't continue to send people in a bad atmosphere without training. And I know, Joe, you've got a little bit of personal experience with something very similar to that. Yes, we've just had different leaks, different fires where people wanted to go get the person that was in there and we just weren't able to because of circumstances. So yes, these are all the things you've got to think about as you evaluate how big or what's the scope going to be? What's my cost? How am I going to manage this problem? And like Jen said, it's kind of like an insurance plan. So you get to kind of pick what version you want and that each location, not even a company, it's each location has to make that decision because of where they're based and what the resources are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Joe, do you have anything else that you want to cover on this one in terms of PSM prep or just management on the front end of your emergency action plan? Or are we going to be, you know, offensive or defensive? I think the biggest thing you have to do is you need to train some people we call like an instant manager. You have to train some of them to manage it from the original event, those evacuations, getting people headcount, assembly, stuff like that. And then you've got the instant command where you're mainly from our side of the world is managing chemical events. And we still need to have all those other pieces first. And then during the event, you could have all of it come back together. So the biggest thing is just breaking down who you're going to train, what you're going to train them on, get that information together. Do some scenarios on it. Do some basically test runs to see how your system work. Modify it as you go and then just keep going and make it better every time. Absolutely. So you're kind of just looking at evaluate your cost of having a team, trailers, equipment, gear, yep. phys- fit tests, physicals, you know, the medical side. Evaluate the cost of not having a team based on your worst case scenarios on your RMP. And then that kind of directs you based on what the outcome of those two things are and what you've got the capability staffing wise of doing. That kind of directs you down what path you go. Yes. Yes. It all goes together all at the same time. All right. Thank you, everybody, for having me on today. Appreciated being a guest. And Joe, since this is your podcast, I'll kind of let you close it out. All right. We'd just like to say thank you um, for Jen for taking her time and give us some different ideas and different ways of looking at it. Like I said, she's fought some live leaks and has been part of creating a lot of the systems that we look for across the country and how we manage these systems. So we appreciate you taking time to do that. We will close out this podcast and look forward to the next one. The next part, we'll talk about more of how we're going to start managing these systems. And if we don't have anything else, thank you each for your time and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Safe, Efficient, Profitable, a worker safety podcast. If you like what you heard here, please take a moment to write us a quick review, like, subscribe, and share our podcast so that others can find us. For questions or to request topics that you'd like to hear on our next show, please visit us at www.allen-safety.com. Thank you. Safety first, stay safe.